I'm Timothy Putnam, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week, we gather right here to explore the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of our faith on our daily life, so that together, you and I can prepare to live outside the walls. Man, there are so many things we could talk about today. Pentecost is tomorrow. The Holy Spirit that comes and unites the church and empowers the church to go out and share the good news that God became man, lived a sinless life, and then suffered, died, was buried, and resurrected for the purpose of uniting us back to the Father. Uh, We who are made in the image of God now through the Eucharist are able to become more like him uh, to really fulfill and complete that, that creation as God continues to make us in his image and likeness. We could talk about Pentecost all day long, about uh, being open to the Holy Spirit and allowing him to change our priorities as he did with the saints, to allow us to be humble when we don't want to be, as he did with the saints. Uh, The fruit of the Spirit that comes from a life infused and obedient to the Holy Spirit. We could talk about my wedding anniversary. Uh, My wife and I have been married now for uh, on May twentieth for twelve years. Uh, if you want to get us a, <laughs> if you want to get us a wedding present, go over to Patreon, uh, outsidethewalls.com, Click the Patreon link and support the show. Uh, but seriously, uh, we could talk about marital love or anything along those lines about how we mirror Christ's relationship with the church through that. I mean, that's a topic that would be kind of right itself. We could talk about our anniversary. Uh, my wife and I of coming into the Catholic Church. On May 21st, uh, 2011, that's coming up on seven years now, uh, we, there's so much that we could be talking about. All of these things are potential show material, and you know we would have to have a pretty good topic and a pretty amazing guest for me to, uh, to turn back those topics. But we've been talking about the Eucharist during the whole of Eastertide, Uh, We've been approaching it from different directions and different angles. And you might think that we have exhausted that topic, but oh, but oh, that's not the case. Well, first of all, the the Eucharist is the source and the summit of our faith. It's both where our faith comes from, the source, and the summit, the heights to which we aspire. It is everything for us. The Eucharist is is that pearl of great price that so many have come into the church and left their old lives, just like I did, uh, because of the promise and the truth of Christ's presence with us in the Eucharist. Now, as you know, every once in a while, I get uh, book solicitations. People send me, uh, publishers send me books from Catholic authors in hopes that I'll take a look at it, enjoy the book, and bring it to you here. And some of those books uh, I do, and we, we have great conversations with authors because they are tapping into what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us at this stage in our, in our life, at this stage in our culture. Uh, but I got a new one. I got a new uh, publisher that I would not heard from before, and I read over it, and it was about the Eucharist, and I knew we were talking about the Eucharist in, in Eastertide, and I thought, well, hey, I'll that looks good. I'll get that. And, uh, and I expected it to be like all the other books that I got, uh, the, you know, the 150, 200 page variety, uh, softbound and, uh, inspirational in nature. <laughs> well, this book comes this box from Amazon and I can hardly pick it up. I'm like, what is in this? Maybe it's a packet of a few books. No, it's one book 
the Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion by Emmaus Academic Press. Oh, I missed that academic word, EmmausAcademic.com. And this is basically a systematic theology of the Eucharist uh, by Dr. Lawrence Feingold out of Kenrick Glennon Seminary in St. Louis. And I have to tell you, as I have dug into this, it is so fantastically amazing. I can hardly contain my, my exuberance for this to the point that I, I tried to get him on a little bit earlier so we could talk about Pentecost today, and it just didn't work out with his schedule or mine to get him any earlier than today. And so we're pushing back a few other things. See, technically, since it's Saturday, it's not yet Pentecost. We're still in Easter, and I told you that in Easter we were going to be talking about the Eucharist, and this book does it all. You know, I've seen a number of, of different books out there. There's a great one by uh, Dr. Brant Petrie on the Jewish roots of the Eucharist. Well, some of those things are handled in here in a little bit more uh, academic way, uh, cited in, in extra footnotes and what you would expect from that kind of book. Some talk about uh, Eucharistic adoration. Well, this has got that covered. Some talk about uh, the reason that Christ gave. Well, that's covered in here. This whole thing basically starts at the very beginning of why Jesus comes to us in the Eucharist and then unpacks it all the way. And I mean all the way. And so we're going to be talking today with Dr. Feingold about the Eucharist. And we're going to talk specifically, we're going to jump ahead of uh, into some questions that have been interesting to me, questions that I don't really have a good answer for. I figure today is the day to look into that, of how Christ becomes present to us uh, and how to really wrap our heads around the mystery. And it really is a mystery of transubstantiation. And the Eucharist really is the linchpin for everything else, for all the other topics we could talk about. Because if Christ's sacrifice is not made presence to us, how do we receive the grace from it? How are we to experience a oneness and a unity with Christ, if not for the Eucharist? If Christ's sacrifice is not made present to us, then what does the Holy Spirit do for us? How can the Holy Spirit unite us to God the Father through some faraway, uh, distant act? No, Christ comes to us each and every day if we'll approach him in the Eucharist. And he comes to feed our souls and to make us, to mold us as a potter molds clay more fully into his image and likeness, to give us a sharing in his divine nature, by no means taking away the fact that we're humans, by no means making us into uh, God, but giving us a share in his divine life and in his divine nature. And that all comes through Christ present to us here in the Eucharist. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Dr. Lawrence Feingold about transubstantiation, about the whys and the hows of Christ coming to us, being made present to us. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. 
I'm your host, Timothy Putnam, and here we are. Tomorrow is the Feast of Pentecost, uh, which is the end of Eastertide. And you know, we've, throughout this entire Easter season, we have been talking about the Eucharist. We've done it through a different number of different ways, talking about the importance of the Mass and how we can spiritually get more uh, out of the Mass and prepare ourselves so that we're properly disposed. But today, we're going to dive right into some of the, the trickiest topics of the church that, that created uh, quite a bit of a conundrum long about the time of St. Thomas Aquinas. We're going to talk about the Eucharist itself, uh, how it comes to be, and, and try to wrap our heads around that mystery. And to help us do that today, we have Dr. Lawrence Feingold, who is the Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Kenrick Glennon Seminary in St. Louis author of this fantastic book, The Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion, available right now on Emmaus Academic Press, EmmausAcademic.com. Dr. Feingold, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So you have this this fantastic book. I get a lot of books in the mail from various publishers, and generally they're the the, uh, maybe 200-page, 150-page variety of just inspirational living. And so, you know, I didn't expect a whole lot more than that. I did confess I didn't uh, know much about you or the book and it came I asked for a copy of it and it came in the mail and it's like 661 pages uh, but I love this because I opened up the just looking through the table of contents is almost theologically enriching just there as you've broken out uh, your questions and your topics down to uh, really small chunks so you can find something just that's a, a bugging a question that's bugging you and go straight to it, which is what I did. <laughs> and I, I want to talk to you today about the way in which the Eucharist, the sacrament of Christ's uh, passion, death and resurrection, the way in which that comes to us, uh, which of course the church calls transubstantiation. So just starting off here, uh, you are a student of Thomas Aquinas. You've, you've just laid out this beautiful, really systematic theology of the Eucharist. Uh, but you know full well that sometimes language can hinder us from a fuller understanding. So we we know the terms that Christ comes to us through uh, the changing of the substance of bread and wine, and we receive his body, blood, soul, and divinity. There's a lot packed into that right there. Talk to us a little bit about what is meant by substance, what is meant by the accidental properties, the accidents remaining the same, uh, and help us maybe with a little glossary of how we can approach this and get a better understanding. Can I preface it by stepping back a little bit? Let me just start with the question, why Jesus wants to be present in that way. So I think it's really important to keep in mind first that Jesus wanted to devise a way by which his whole presence, his whole personal presence could remain with us while he was leaving us. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the, the problem that he, at the Last Supper, he gave the solution. He was about to leave his disciples. He was saying goodbye. He was about to die. He knew he would rise, he, but he knew he would ascend into heaven and leave them. Mm-hmm. And so he had to devise a way in which he would leave them and stay with them, stay with us, but in a way appropriate to our situation as pilgrims still in exile, this side of, of the heaven that he was ascending to. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the problem. A personal presence that's total, that's all of him, nothing lacking, but in a way proper to our exile. And that means 
away unseen, totally there, but also totally veiled, so that we could have the merit of faith. Mm-hmm. And then they just add one more premise before we get to your technical question, if that's all right. Absolutely. And the second premise is that he wanted to remain present because he's a lover. He's the bridegroom. We're the bride. He wants to be with us. And so the Eucharist is the sacrament of spousal love. And spousal love, first of all, wants to dwell with the beloved. When we get married, we want to be with our spouses. And it's a tragedy if if circumstances force us apart. But that's not the end of the story. So I just think, let me just add, he wanted to remain with us to give himself for us in sacrifice. And now I... We won't focus that here, right. but that's part of the piece. And so he comes to be present so that he can offer himself. But first he has to be present before he can offer himself. Right. And then he wants to offer himself, not just for us, but to us totally in Holy Communion. And also for that, he needs to be present. So he needs to be present to be with us. He needs to be present to be offered in true sacrifice and he needs to be present so that he can give himself totally to us. And body, blood, soul, and divinity, nothing lacking, but in a way fitting to our pilgrimage in faith so that he's giving us in a way veiled. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's, that's the premise. All right, so how does he do this? Well, what would be a way to be present totally, but present in a veiled way? So he's going to be veiled by something else that we can see and touch. And so um, that which veils him, which will be the bread and the wine, is also meant to reveal the other two things that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. That he's come to give himself for us on the cross, sacrificing himself for us, separating his blood from his body. And so what he's, the veils have to represent that, his body and his blood. Right. And so the bread and the wine are chosen to represent his body and his blood separated from his body. And then he wants to give himself totally to us to nourish our souls with love, which he is. Right. And therefore, he wants the veils that, can, that both conceal and make him present to also represent that, that it's, he's nourishing us. And hence the bread and the wine. Mm-hmm. So he's wanted to remain, to become present under these veils of bread and wine. Right. And so what better way to do that than by taking bread and wine and I don't want to say transforming, we'll talk right. about this, making it into himself, mm-hmm. but in such a way that his self, which is present, is not seen. But what is seen is what was there before, the bread, and likewise with the wine, turning that into himself, turning it into his blood, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute, why he, um, so turning it into his blood, but all of him being present there, and I'll explain that, um, but keeping the appearances of the wine, the bread and the wine, If you're just joining us, we're talking today with Dr. Lawrence Feingold about his new book, Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion. 
And when we talk about appearances, we're not just talking about the look. We're right. talking about the, yeah. uh, the all the ways in which we physically experience it. So the right. taste and the effects of the wine and uh, all of those th- ways that wine generally would affect us, the appearances come to us of the Eucharist that way as well. It affects us right. in the same way as the substance of wine would, even though it now is the substance of Christ. Right. The Catholic tradition, especially the, um, the medieval scholastic theologians, starting in the 12th century, make use of the philosophy of Aristotle. But I think it's important here to recognize that what we're talking about isn't one particular philosophical system, um, but really the philosophy of common sense. Mm-hmm. So in common sense experience, we all um, are able to distinguish um, what something is from what appears, right? how something is, as opposed to what something is. Mm-hmm. Right? And so we ask different questions. What is it? And substance is what answers that question. What is it? But then we can ask, how is it? And that would be the different aspects of the appearances. And there philosophers give a technical term, accidents, accidental properties. Mm-hmm. So answering a different question, the how, as opposed to the what. So an accidental property is not something that happens by chance. It's something that is not essential to that thing's identity. So for instance, I can be sitting in a chair and that thing is a chair, even if it is made of wood and the wood could just as easily be made of metal or something else. The, the, what it is made of has no bearing on the isness, perhaps the, what the, the essential quality, the, the substance as the, the, philosophers would say, of that item. Right. So the the substance would be um, something that the senses can't directly grasp, right? The the senses, our senses, um, grasp the appearances of things, their accidental properties. And from that, our intelligence, our intellect, can grasp the whatness Mm -hmm. and what a thing is, and we call that the substance. Right? So our intellect grasps the substance, but our senses and all of that which prolongs our senses, microscopes, telescopes, and all the means of investigation, again, are grasping the accidents of a thing. Now, some of those accidents are, um, could be replaced with others. Others may be properties that are proper to it, um, but there'd still be um, um, the accidental properties or, or um, qualities are things that the senses grasp as opposed to the what it is that the intellect grasps. Right. All right. So Jesus tells, can, all right, ask your question. Sorry. So, so here we have uh, this question of transubstantiation because it is the mm-hmm. what, the, the isness of something that mm-hmm. is being uh, changed, trans, uh, turned into something else, right? It's, it's why we don't say transformation because the external form remains the same, yes? Right? Jesus expresses that in very simple terms in the Last Supper by saying, this, holding up a piece of bread, right. is my body. And so he's using the language of is. Again, precisely, what a thing is, we say is its substance. And so the face value of his words is saying, this substance here, which mm-hmm. really is bread at the beginning, at the end of the sentence now is his body, right? The what it is, is his body. 
but clearly how it looks, how it tastes, how it feels, how it smells, all of that remains the same as what it was before. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned something in the book uh, that I, I love. Um, you talk about it has to be a complete change. Christ has to be completely changed into uh the bread and wine have to be completely changed into Christ. Otherwise, it would make him a liar because he said, this, this is my body. Mm-hmm. If it had been Christ coming into the bread and wine, he would have instead said, here is my body. Because mm-hmm. the thisness of the bread uh, has to be what it is. And when he names it as this, he says, the substance before you has now been changed and is my body. And that, that was a new way of putting it for me that I'd not heard before. Right. St. Thomas Aquinas makes that argument, right? That the very language used by Jesus at the Last Supper is the language of what is, and not a language implying a movement or some kind of accidental change, um, right. but one being into another being, one substance into another substance. We're talking today with Dr. Lawrence Feingold, Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Kenrick Glennon Seminary in St. Louis, talking about his brand new book, The Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion. Much more to come right after this break. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. We're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Feingold in greater depth right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Today we're talking with Dr. Lawrence Feingold, uh, Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Kenrick Glennon Seminary in St. Louis, talking about his new book, Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion. Dr. Feingold, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you for hosting and having me. Now, this is a very complete book. I mean, you you go through uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament and the Fathers and uh, the controversies in the early Middle Ages and talk about the development of our understanding of the Eucharist all the way up to some recent magisterial texts on Eucharistic adoration. And you do this in just over 650 pages. And, and yet, which, which I think is small considering the undertaking you've done, uh, and, and yet it's not intimidating at all. The way that you've broken it up, it's very easy to, to come to and to read. You don't have to have a master's in philosophy or theology to pick it up, right? It's eminently approachable. Uh, And so if you're listening, go right now over to EmmausAcademic.com and pick up this fantastic book. I want to get to probably one of the most difficult concepts, uh, but I figure while I've got the expert is the time to do it. This question of, of how Christ is present to us. Uh, this is something I've not always understood, uh, really am still trying to wrap my head around, is that Christ is present to us full and entire, right? He's not, the host is not divisible. You don't get any more of Jesus or less of Jesus, depending on how big a piece the, the priest gives you, right? We receive all of Christ 
as he presently is, his glorified body and blood and soul and divinity right at this moment. But he comes to us and is present while he is not dimensionally so. He is present to us, but he is not present in the way that we understand other things to be present. So kind of explain how that specific idea or doctrine developed and what it means for us. Okay, great question. This is maybe one of the, certainly one of the hardest questions about the Eucharist. And that puzzled um, puzzled theologians through the ages caused huge controversies in the ninth century, in the 11th century. Um, so let me see what I can do about this. Um, the first thing, again, keeping, I think it's really helpful to keep in mind, um, theolo- uh, I'm sorry, make a preface here. Theology is looking at things through God's eyes. And so when we do theology, we want to put ourselves, to a certain extent, insofar as we can, into the mind of God to see, um, and in this case, the mind of Jesus Christ as he's instituting the Eucharist. So the problem that Jesus has before him is to make himself present in a better way than he was present um, in his physical body, seen um, by his disciples and so forth, because he, he was subject to the limitations of space and time. So if he was in Galilee, he could only be in Galilee and he couldn't be in, in Judea or in the United States and um, likewise limited by time. So he wanted to make himself totally present, but in such a way that he would be totally present to his whole bride, mm-hmm. his whole bride being us, the church, throughout all the ages until he returns again in his second coming. And therefore to be wholly present as much where I'm sitting right now in St. Louis and where you are, and our readers, our listeners throughout the U.S. and the world. Um, and so he had to become present in a way that would not be bound by uh, the limitations of dimension. And that's part of our common sense experience with the Eucharist, that we know that it doesn't matter whether we receive a big or small host, we get the whole of him. Well, and you, whether you're in line right in front of me or whether you're in a mass several states away, you're not receiving a different Jesus or a part of right. Jesus. We are right. both receiving the whole of who Jesus is, his whole right. body, whole soul, all blood and divinity. Right. The whole of him, the whole of his one self. And so the way that he devised to do this was to take things that are in our space and time, bread and wine, the bread that's here in St. Louis or wherever the listener happens to be, and to turn that particular bread that's localized in our space into him. Mm-hmm. who is one, and into all of him. And so he now becomes present under, but keeping the appearances. So at first sight, we might say, why did Jesus want to keep those appearances of the bread and wine after the, the substance of it has changed into him? Mm-hmm. And the answer is twofold, or maybe even threefold. Twofold in the sense that he wants to keep those appearances, we said, so that we can have the merit of faith. Right. Secondly, he wanted to keep those appearances because they are meaningful. They're signs of what he is there for, to feed us, to nourish us, and also signs of his body and blood separate. And third, he wanted those appearances to remain because they are localized. They, are, they have dimension, and that dimension is in our space. Mm-hmm. But he wanted all of him to be under any of those dimensions. Right. So he became present in a different way. All right, so here, theologians make a technical distinction Thomas Aquinas, this is part of the brilliance of Thomas Aquinas, he distinguishes two modes of presence, the mode of quantity and the mode of substance. 
The mode of quantity is a mode by which parts are outside of other parts. We look at our bodies and our nose is outside of our cheeks, outside of our chest, et cetera. And so we have parts outside of other parts. That's the mode of quantity that creates dimension, mm -hmm. uh, the foundation of the science of mathematics. But substance is present in a different way. And even substance meaning the essence of something. The isness, so, the whatness. Right. The whatness of bread and wine is equally present under all of the bread and wine, under any part of it. And what, right? So wine, the substance of wine, or the essence of wine, if, if you will, is equally present under any part of the dimension of the wine. And likewise, our own soul is mm -hmm. fully present in any part of our body. I can't say I've got a hundredth of my soul present in my pinky here. Um, it's not divisible. We're so. talking today with Dr. Lawrence Feingold about his book, The Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion. Dr. Feingold, that indivisibility of substance comes out even as our language, as we talk about a drop of wine right. or a glass of wine that explains what it is down to the, the, the very molecule of it. We can say the very molecule contains the fullness of the wine. Right. So Jesus becomes, because the substance of that bread and wine has been um, converted into Jesus, mm -hmm. into his body and his blood, his body and his blood is present under the appearances of the bread and wine in the same way, analogously, that the substance of the bread and wine was present previously. And that was whole and entire under every part. Right. So that's really the key. Jesus is present whole and entire under every part of the appearances of bread and wine after the consecration, as the substance of bread and wine had been present whole and entire under every part, mm -hmm. as our own soul is present whole and entire under every part of our bodies. Right? Right. But there's this difference. Um, our soul is present under every part of our bodies, but our body isn't wholly present because right. our body exists in the mode of quantity, parts outside of parts. Jesus wanted the whole of him, not just his soul, but also his body to be whole and entire under every part of the appearances of the bread and the wine so that nothing of him is lacking under every part. And thus, it doesn't matter whether we receive a large part or a small part, we receive the whole of him. And for the same reason, it doesn't matter whether we receive him under both species or just under one species, we receive him whole and entire. Now, one last little thing, and of course, it's not a little thing, so we're going to try and, and fit it in here. Um, we hear often that through the Eucharist, the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is made present to us. And yet what we receive is not Christ's crucified body, but we receive his glorified body, not blood and, uh, and body separated, but whole and intact and entire, as you've just been saying. So how, how is it that we receive that sacrifice without it being a re-sacrifice, as some people accuse us of doing? All right. Great question. I need more time to answer that. But, <laughs> but, um, so the, the transubstantiation, the words said by the priest, which were said by Jesus the Last Supper, make Jesus present as he is. All right, so that's the rule. So when those words are said, this is my body, his body becomes present as it now is. And it now is glorified. Right. right? Now, Thomas Aquinas poses the hypothesis just to, for um, the text, for the classroom, for the blackboard. What if 
sacrifice, I'm sorry, the sacrifice of the mass had been celebrated on Holy Saturday. There's no reason to think that it was. Well, let's just suppose Peter had celebrated mass Mm -hmm. on Holy Saturday. If If mass had been celebrated on Holy Saturday, when those words, this is my body, were said, it would have been just his body, because at that moment, his body, laying in the tomb, was really separated from his blood, which got shed right. on the cross. And so the words, this is my blood, would have made his blood present, but not his body, because they were separate. And in neither one would have made his soul present, because at the moment of his death, his soul separated from both his body and soul, and went to the souls of the just, who were awaiting him from the old covenant, and... And right. the judge, and that descended to the dead, and, and but his divinity was united both to his body and blood and his soul, never to be separated from them. All right, on Easter Sunday, all of that got reunited. Mm-hmm. Body, blood, and soul—the divinity always being united—and so from Easter Sunday on, whenever Mass is celebrated, and the words "This is my body" directly make his body present, but indirectly by way of accompaniment also make all the rest of him present, which is his blood and his soul, Mm -hmm. as well as his divinity. And likewise, the words over the chalice make not just his blood present, they make his blood directly present, but his body can't be separated from his blood anymore because he rose never to die again. But it's still, there's a meaning though. There's a reason why he instituted the Eucharist with the two species and not just with one, Mm -hmm. because it's not only the the sacrament of his presence, but it's the sacrament of his sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And so the double consecration represents what physically happened on Calvary. His right. blood being really physically separated from his body for love of us to redeem the world. And of course, as we come and we receive the Eucharist and we receive into ourselves uh, the body, blood, soul, and divinity, we are uh, united to our spouse in that spousal love. You talked about why Christ became present. And and then we are uh, made sharers in his divine nature. And one of the things you mentioned here in the book, just a little snippet that I love, uh, you talk about normally we eat food and we digest it and we turn it into us, right? Our bodies turn that into us. And yet when we eat the, the body and blood and soul and divinity of Christ, uh, we are not, we don't turn it into us. We are then turned into it. It transforms us more into the likeness of, of image and likeness of God the Father through Jesus Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, St. Augustine so beautifully expressed that in his confessions. Mm-hmm. I'm making precisely that analogy. I eat the apple, I turn it into me, but I receive the Eucharist if I. And this, again, depends on my dispositions. So receiving the Eucharist, according, I have to be already in communion of grace, Mm -hmm. in a state of grace to be, and the nourishment is to bring me closer into that communion that already exists, to nourish that communion. And therefore, it's our disposition of desire that according to the depth of our hunger and thirst for him, and we will be more configured to him. And thanks be to God, he's allowed us to receive him more than once. We're talking today with Dr. Larry Feingold, Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Kenrick Glennon Seminary, about his new book, The Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion. Pick it up on EmmausAcademic.com. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back right after this.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam, and today we've been tackling the topic of transubstantiation, one of those tricky words and really tricky concepts. We've been talking with Dr. Lawrence Feingold. He's an associate professor of theology and philosophy at Kenrick Glennon Seminary, and he's just the man to take us through it. Uh, We talked about his new book, 650-page tome, The Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion. And it is just uh, a fantastic read. I encourage you. It's uh, published by Emmaus Academic. It's a hefty little book. I encourage you to go pick it up, uh, EmmausAcademic.com. If you missed any part of the show or you want to share it with others, well, have no fear. It's archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com where we put all of our episodes that we've ever aired. It's there for your listening pleasure. Share it with your friends on social media. Uh, Maybe they have questions about what we mean as Catholics when we say that Jesus becomes the body and blood, because we have this culture that doesn't understand uh, how something can be real and not physical, right? How something can be actual and not empirical. And so this is a this is the interview to answer that. This is the book to answer that. Uh, while you're over there on OutsideTheWalls.com, there's an extra segment with uh, with Dr. Feingold that's available to those people who support the show through Patreon. As little as $5 a month, that's, uh, that's a small coffee at Starbucks or something. Uh, you can get all of the extra content that we record with our guests each and every week. Uh, and there are some other levels you can support the show and get some other uh, freebies as well. Our Patreon supporters make all the difference. They allow us to keep bringing you these interviews week in and week out. Uh, I can't thank them enough. Why don't you go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and join their numbers. Let's go ahead and turn our attention now over to a reading from Scripture. This comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. And as Dr. Feingold said, Jesus wanted some way to connect with his disciples, uh, including you and I, after he ascended. And so we hear that a little bit in this prayer uh, where Jesus prays to the Father for you and for me specifically. He says uh, in the gospel, lifting up his eyes to heaven, Jesus prayed saying, I pray not only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word so that they may all be one as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me and I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be brought to perfection as one, that the world may know that you sent me, and that you loved them even as you loved me. Father, they are your gift for me, and I wish that where I am, they also may be with me that they may see my glory that you gave me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world also does not know you, but I know you, and they know that you sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. That reading comes from the Gospel of John, where Christ himself prays for us. Now, towards the end of Dr. Feingold's book, he's got this section on Eucharistic adoration, and he pulls this passage 
from uh, from Cardinal Ratzinger's book, Spirit of the Liturgy, which uh, was reprinted in the year 2000 by Ignatius Press. You can still get it. It's still in print. It's a fabulous book. And uh, I, I want to bring that little passage. Normally we go back and we get a, a passage from one of the church fathers or church doctors, but in my, in my heart of hearts, I'm convinced that one of these days, uh, Benedict will be one of our doctors of the church. So uh, because of that, conv- <laughs> I don't know if that's correct or not, but that's my conviction. So let's go ahead and read this passage from the Spirit of the Liturgy on Eucharistic devotion. Transubstantiation, the substantial change of the bread and wine, the adoration of the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, Eucharistic devotions with monstrance and processions, all these things, it is alleged, are medieval errors, errors from which we must once and for all take our leave. The Eucharistic gifts are for eating, not for looking at. These and similar slogans are all too familiar. It is plain for all to see that already for St. Paul, bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, that is, the risen Lord himself who is present and gives himself to us to eat. The vigor with which the real presence is emphasized in John chapter 6 could hardly be surpassed. For the church fathers, too, from the earliest witnesses onward, just think of St. Justin Martyr or St. Ignatius of Antioch, There is no doubt about the great mystery of the presence bestowed upon us, about the change of the gifts during the Eucharistic prayer. Even a theologian of such spiritualizing tendency as St. Augustine never had a doubt about it. Indeed, he shows us just how far confession of faith in the Incarnation and Resurrection, which is so closely bound up with the Eucharistic faith in the bodily presence of the risen Lord, has transformed Platonism. He is here. He himself, the whole of himself, and he remains here. This realization came upon the Middle Ages with a wholly new intensity. It was caused in part by the deepening of theological reflection, but still more important was the new experience of the saints, especially in the Franciscan movement and in the new evangelization undertaken by the order of preachers. What happened in the Middle Ages is not a misunderstanding due to losing sight of what is central, but a new dimension of the reality of Christianity, opening up through the experience of the saints, supported and illuminated by the reflection of the theologians. At the same time, this new development is in complete continuity with what has always been believed hitherto. Let me say it again. This deepening awareness of faith is impelled by the knowledge that in the consecrated species, he is there and remains there. When a man experiences this with every fiber of his heart and mind and senses, the consequence is inescapable. We must make a proper place for this presence. And so, little by little, the tabernacle takes shape. And more and more, always in a spontaneous way, it takes the place previously occupied by the now-disappeared Ark of the Covenant. In fact, the tabernacle is the complete fulfillment of what the Ark of the Covenant represented. It is the place of the Holy of Holies. It is the tent of God, His throne. Here, He is among us. His presence really does now dwell among us in the humblest parish church, no less than in the grandest cathedral. Even though the definitive temple will only come to be when the world has become the new Jerusalem, still what the temple in Jerusalem pointed to 
is here, present in a supreme way. The new Jerusalem is anticipated in the humble species of bread. So let no one say the Eucharist is for eating, not looking at. It is not ordinary bread, as the most ancient traditions constantly emphasize. Eating it is a spiritual process involving the whole man. Eating it means worshiping it. Eating it means letting it come into me so that my I is transformed and opens up into the great we, so that we become one in him. Thus, adoration is not opposed to communion, nor is it merely added to it. No, communion only reaches its true depths when it is supported and surrounded by adoration. The Eucharistic presence in the tabernacle does not set another view of the Eucharist alongside or against the Eucharistic celebration, but simply signifies its complete fulfillment. For this presence has the effect, of course, of keeping the Eucharist forever in church. The church never becomes a lifeless space, but is always filled with the presence of the Lord, which comes out of the celebration, leads us into it, and always makes us participants in the cosmic Eucharist. What man of faith has not experienced this? A church without the Eucharistic presence is somehow dead, even when it invites people to pray. But a church in which the eternal light is burning before the tabernacle is always alive, is always something more than a building made of stones. In this place, the Lord is always waiting for me, calling me, wanting to make me Eucharistic. In this way, he prepares me for the Eucharist, sets me in motion towards his return. The changes in the Middle Ages brought losses, but they also provided a wonderful spiritual deepening. They unfolded the magnitude of the mystery instituted at the Last Supper and enabled it to be experienced with a new fullness. How many saints, yes, including saints of the love of neighbor, were nourished and led to the Lord by this experience. We must not lose this richness. If the presence of the Lord is to touch us in a concrete way, the tabernacle must also find its proper place in the architecture of our church buildings. That reading comes from the book The Spirit of the Liturgy by Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, before he became Pope Benedict XVI. It's available on Ignatius Press. It's one of my ongoing favorites. Uh, please go pick that up. This is a real simple read, and a, it's deeply, deeply enriching. Because Christ made present to us comes to us as he is now, resurrected in all of his glory, in all of his fullness, and invites us by the work that he did on the cross through his passion, his death, and his resurrection, invites us to be unified to the Father. This is the good news. We do not worship a dead Christ, but we worship a living God who longs to continue to create us and make us into his image and likeness in all of its fullness. That's all the time we have today. Have a blessed Pentecost and be filled with the Spirit as you're made into his likeness. Today's show is brought to you by Paige and Kent Keithley and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link and join their numbers. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.